The United States of America, youngest by far of the world's great nations, stands today the envy of the civilized world. The census is pretty much the only thing the government does that is specifically described as a mandate in the Constitution. Official scorekeeper of American development for 150 years has been the busy but unspectacular United States Census. The Constitution says that every 10 years, the government has to do a whole count of the number of persons in, in the various states. 1790 was the first one, and it initially was done by a sort of hand count, and, and it's evolved over the years. Fifteen times, through wars, booms, and panics, the census has presented a steadily broadening picture of the nation in a 10-year inventory. And every 10 years since then, um, there has been a count, and almost every 10 years since then, there's been a redistricting that follows, which basically distributes power in the United States. 120,000 census takers are radiating in a carefully planned pattern across America to complete, in a single month, the greatest inventory of the world's greatest democracy. And now the argument being made by the states is that the Trump administration is undermining a constitutionally mandated exercise of counting every person in the country. They're putting a question on which is going to poison the process and prevent as accurate a count. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we're talking about a pretty straightforward idea. Can the president add a question to the 2020 census? And a less straightforward idea. Can that question ask about the citizenship? The U.S. Department of Commerce announced last month that they're planning to introduce that question to the basic census form that gets sent to every household in the country. And this one simple question has sparked intense opposition and opposition to the opposition. Only U.S. citizens are allowed to vote in federal elections, so it might be nice to know how many live in this country. Sound reasonable to you? Even boring? Are you still awake? If not, then you're not a professional outrage merchant. The left came close to losing consciousness today over this idea. This, we know from 40 years of statements by census officials, will prevent them from making the full and fair count that they're required to under the Constitution. They say what is at stake here is a decade of political ramifications, the number of seats each state has in Congress, as well as electoral votes in the presidential race. More than a dozen states have sued the Trump administration to block the citizenship question from getting onto the census. By including a citizenship question, which will diminish response rates, the census will not be able to fulfill its constitutional duty to count everyone. And this plan to ask people whether or not they're U.S. citizens, it brings up this question. If the census already asks about stuff like gender, age, race, and ethnic origin, why is it such a big deal to tack on an item about whether or not a person is a U.S. citizen? Michael Shearer is a national political reporter for The Post, and he's been trying to game out both of these potential scenarios. And to understand the way that this one census question could have huge implications way down the road, first you need to understand some essentials about the census. So let me start with a kind of basic question, which is, what is the census and why do we have it? The original intention was the redistricting of the House. They needed a way of counting the number of people in the country so they could figure out how many representatives to give to each state. 
so the framers of the Constitution decide that, okay, if we're going to portion out the seats in the House of Representatives based on each state's population, then it's critical that we know exactly how many people are living in each state. So once a decade, we'll count them, each and every person, one by one. And the idea is that, you know, even though we can do sampling and statistics to try and figure out you know, where people live, we kind of have a pretty good sense. They actually want to do an actual count, and they want to get a questionnaire in front of every household. And in that first count in 1790, that involves census takers going from house to house and asking, how many people live here? How many adult white men? How many white boys? How many white women? How many non-white free people? And how many slaves? And since then, the basic concept has remained essentially the same. You send out a ton of people to tabulate every member of every household in America and to get some basic info about them. Which is really an enormous undertaking. They hire tens of thousands of people to go door to door. They, In the past, it was done by mail. This next time in 2020, a lot of it will be done electronically. And is it optional to fill that out? I mean, if you're not comfortable kind of giving this information to the government, are you allowed to just say thanks but no thanks? There's actually a law that says you're not allowed to say that, and you can be fined, but it's not an enforced law. And in practice, every time they do this, lots of people don't fill out the forms, either because they're not found, because they're moving around a lot. People who rent rather than own their homes, they tend to be undercounted. Homeless people, low-income people, and minorities also tend to be undercounted. White people tend to be overcounted, which probably isn't that shocking. And this count is important for reasons that go way beyond the number of representatives that each state gets in Congress. We know how much money um, goes to each state for lots of different things like education and health care. That's how we know where to build new schools and hospitals. Um, more than $600 billion a year is distributed based on the census formulas. And they're not just using the total count, but they're also using the demographic data that's collected from the census. Because over the years, we've dramatically expanded the kinds of information that we collect. By 1940, the questionnaire asked about all kinds of stuff like education, marital status, place of birth, occupation, income level, whether you were a veteran, what language you speak at home. And yeah, citizenship was on there too, along with the birthplace of your mom and dad. All in all, the 1940 census had 50 questions. And after that, people kind of decided like, okay, 50 questions is too many questions. So for the next census, they split all their questions into two different forms. One was the short form with just a few very basic questions that would get sent to everybody's house. And then they took all the other questions. And they created something called the long-form census, which was given to about one-sixth of households. And it continued to contain a lot more questions than just the basic set. You know, stuff about income, stuff about, you know, the plumbing in your house, you know, all kinds of things like that. And they'd use the answers as a representative sample to make statistical estimates about the larger population. And, and the citizenship question essentially continued in that form, but it wasn't asked of every household. So now we have a longer survey that goes to a small subset of households once a year. It's now called the American Community Survey. And then we have the main short-form census, the super important one that comes out once per 10 years. And every decade, there are tweaks to the questions, like minor additions and subtractions. And these changes are discussed years in advance. The Commerce Department will give a heads up to Congress, and then they talk it over. And then each question is tested, and it gets sent out in sample surveys. And then they have focus groups. 
It's all very scientific. This is an agency of statisticians and sort of data nerds, and they like to have everything structured in a way where everything is planned. They know exactly what the effect of every change they're making is. At least, that's how it usually goes down. But this census cycle, things have unfolded differently. Late last year, just as the Census Bureau was wrapping up vetting for its final questions for the 2020 forum, they were contacted by officials at the Department of Justice. Those officials were like, hey, we think you need to put this one question asking about citizenship back up to the main census form. And the rationale they used for requesting this was uh, they needed better data to enforce Article 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, like the legislation that was passed by Lyndon Johnson in 1965, it prohibits racial discrimination in voting. The Justice Department's argument was that if they had more precise data about the total number of U.S. citizens living in certain areas, that they could detect situations where racial minorities aren't being properly represented in the election process. And so the Justice Department said, we need a, we need a better way of doing that. The American Community Survey is a sort of statistical estimate of the voting eligible population. It's not marked to the every 10-year census. Uh, so we need more specifics. We've contained this question that's provided data that's necessary for the Department of Justice to protect voters uh, and specifically to help us better comply with the Voting Rights Act, uh, which is something that is important and a part of this process. Uh, and again, this is something that has been part of the census uh, for decades and something that the Department of Commerce felt strongly needed to be included again. Has there been any talk of... So that's what the Justice Department said was their reasoning for requesting the citizenship question. And there are a bunch of other valid reasons to include this question. Other countries like Canada and Australia do it. You could argue that having better information about the size and location of immigrant communities can help funnel social services that are particularly helpful to them. And yeah, there's this idea that immigrants could refuse to answer the census because they're afraid of telling the government whether or not they're a citizen. And if the 2020 census ends up using the same question that already exists on the American Community Survey, there would just be one option for, I am not a U.S. citizen, and then you'd leave it at that. That's part of the reason why the people in favor of this new question have been dismissive about the concerns that Immigrants living in the U.S. would be worried about answering this question on the census form. They point out that there are safeguards to prevent this information from being used to target individuals. There's a strict firewall between the Census Bureau and law enforcement agencies. It's a federal crime for a census employee to share individual information about a household with anyone. The data is supposed to be used only to compile statistics about communities or neighborhoods. And yet, people are still wary that they could be deported if they tell the census whether or not they're a citizen. Because if you look back at U.S. history, those safeguards haven't always protected people. There had always been suspicions, but the Census Bureau had always denied it. Lori Aritani is a reporter here at The Post. And she recently wrote this story about the census and about the legal protections around the use of census data. One of the people that she interviewed was Norm Mineta, a former member of Congress and a former secretary of the Departments of Transportation and Commerce. And back in the early 1940s, 
Normanetta was a little boy living in San Jose, Northern California, just as World War II was heating up. One of the stories he told me was that not long after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that same day, FBI agents came and picked up his neighbor's father. Normanetta is Japanese-American. So is his neighbor. And in the weeks and months after Pearl Harbor, Mineta and many members of his community were identified by government officials, they were rounded up, and they were ultimately sent to internment camps. In total, more than 100,000 people were sent to detention centers. And he always wondered how they were able to do that so quickly. Like, that was a massive undertaking. How could the government determine so accurately and so efficiently where Japanese-American families were living? At that time, who had that information? Now you can make the argument that we give our information in a lot of different places by what we buy, by being on Facebook, by tweeting. But at that time, you didn't have any. Everything, things were private. Things were kept in file cabinets. You didn't just plug a name in and get all this information. And so people like Norm did have suspicions that the Census Bureau might have somehow been involved in helping federal officials track down Japanese Americans. But the Census Bureau always denied it, because even back then, there were all these laws in place that were intended to keep private all the raw data from the census forms. Official census questions must be answered, but the census taker is sworn to strict confidence with heavy penalties for violation of his oath. Thus, these vast files become confidences between the citizen and the Census Bureau, specifically protected by law. And I don't know that the Census Bureau had had set out to deliberately cover something up so much as people move on and memories change and stories sort of blur. And so there was this mythology that, that grew to the point where at, at some point in the, in the 80s, Census Bureau officials were touting how they had protected and they had resisted these efforts to get this information. And then in the 1990s, these two researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and Fordham University in New York, they decided that they wanted to dig deeper. They wanted to see if there was any evidence that existed to determine exactly what role the Census Bureau did or didn't play in rounding up Japanese Americans. They were looking through Census Bureau and ultimately Commerce Department records for memos, for requests, for any sort of paper trail that would have indicated if you could find a report, could you follow the paper trail back and figure out who had commissioned that report when it was published, where the information had gotten. So that's that's what they spent a lot of time doing. And then the researchers found something. It was a report compiled by the census. So in 2000, Margot Anderson and William Seltzer had found evidence that the Census Bureau had provided block-level data by ethnicity for Japanese Americans who were living in California, Arizona, Washington State, Wyoming, Colorado, Arkansas, and Utah. Basically, this was a list of street blocks and towns and cities all over the western U.S. where you could find significant populations of Japanese Americans. It was pretty detailed. You know, that might not seem odd these days, but back then, providing block-level data by ethnicity was pretty rare. Anderson and Seltzer didn't come across any similar block-by-block census reports for any other ethnic groups from that time. Not for African Americans, not for Italian Americans, 
not for anyone but Japanese Americans. So it appeared that after all these years, Normanetta was right. This story is very personal to Norm. So the idea that the U.S. government, the Census Bureau, would have cooperated to help round up family, Japanese-American families, is an outrage from a civil liberties point of view. Um, and I think for him is personally distressing. And the researchers kept looking. And in 2007, they came up with something else. They also suspected there had been a release of microdata, which is more significant because that is identifiable information. That's names, that's addresses, that's where people live. Um, And they dug and dug and dug. And what they discovered was a list that was sent from the Commerce Department, which oversees the Census Bureau, to the Treasury Department, which houses the Secret Service. And that list provided exactly that kind of microdata that people feared had been shared. They had released names and addresses of 79 Japanese Americans in the Washington, D.C. area that enabled the Secret Service to essentially follow them and put them under surveillance. And in the process of analyzing these documents, the researchers realized a couple of other things. The Secret Service's request got a response in just seven days. And that suggests that this might have been a pretty well-established path for getting information from the census. The researchers also discovered an explanation for why the census data was handed over to the Secret Service, even though there had been pre-existing laws that were supposed to prevent that. Because in 1942, Congress and President Roosevelt had agreed to this thing called the Second War Powers Act. That legislation temporarily strengthened the power of the executive branch. And in the memo that the researchers saw, the Second War Powers Act was cited as the legal justification for why the Census Bureau was well within its right to share this private data with another federal department. Uh, They'd gone through the chief clerk of the Commerce Department, and they found a memo. And under the Second War Powers Act, which lifted the restrictions about how census data could be used, this person had the authority to release data. So while this makes people squeamish and they worry, none of this was illegal. Under the Second War Powers Act, this census information could be released. So while it wasn't illegal, which is what a lot of census folks will say, and I think even today when they address this particular episode, they note that it wasn't it wasn't illegal. It certainly was ethically dubious. Since then, the census has formally apologized for the role it played in Japanese internment. And they've insisted that nothing similar could ever happen today. Laws were passed in the 1950s and the 1970s, and they were designed to better protect that data. And census employees who violate these protections can be fined up to $250,000, and they could face five years in prison. But as Lori points out, the information is only protected as long as its leaders want to have it, are willing to stand up and ensure that it's protected. By law, the Census Bureau cannot share respondents' answers with anyone, not with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, not with the IRS, not with the FBI, not with the CIA, not with any other government agencies. But what this episode shows us is that those protections are only valid as long as there's a law protecting people, but things can change as they did in 1940 for Japanese Americans. It's been a long time since Japanese internment, 
But that skepticism about the ability of the law to protect individualized census data, that still exists. Michael said that it comes up in the census's own tests and focus groups. In one test that they did in the Washington area in 2016, four out of 15 people interviewed provided incomplete or inaccurate information because they were concerned that the data could be used by the government against immigrants. And the reason they gave was the current political climate. They wouldn't say who was living in their house. They didn't want to expose them. And Michael says that, yeah, that's a legitimate fear. The credibility of the federal government going into some of these communities and saying, trust us, is, is rather low. But on the other hand, he said that there is a pretty significant reason why the census data probably wouldn't be handed over to another agency like the Department of Homeland Security or used for deportations. Well, I don't think right now the challenge in trying to find people to deport is that they don't know where undocumented immigrants live. There's, they have a pretty good idea of where undocumented immigrants live. The, the challenges are really right now one of scale. There's so many people here. They are prioritizing who to deport. But it's not because... There are a bunch of people sitting at desks saying, I have no idea where these people live. So Michael has his eye on a different issue. He's less focused on this idea that personal data about people's immigration status could get leaked. Instead, he's looking at this concern that adding a citizenship question to the census could have huge political implications. And it all goes back to the original reason why the framers of the Constitution mandated a census in the first place, for congressional districts. It is complicated. And there are several levels here. I can say with confidence, it is complicated. But Michael breaks this all down. But if you stop at, start at the top level, the main redistricting, the one that's talked about in the Constitution, is deciding how many House seats each state gets. And that's based on total population. And, and the courts have ruled up to the Supreme Court that the, the number that matters there is total population. The Constitution uses the term persons, doesn't use the term citizens. So every congressional district in the country is supposed to have roughly the same number of total residents. And there's no question about this. When you're deciding how many representatives each state will have in the House, you're supposed to count everybody including children and also immigrants, documented and undocumented, like the total number of bodies living in the country. And a number of judges and justices have argued that it's, it's important to have representation based on the number of people who are living there, not just the number of eligible voters, because, you know, if you have one community that has lots of kids and another community that has no kids, you need more services for the community that has lots of kids. And, and you, should, you should recognize that. You shouldn't just distribute things and power and resources based on the number of voters who happen to live there. And so if we assume that a census citizenship question would cause a significant number of immigrant families to refuse to fill out the form altogether, the number of people recorded living in certain areas could be way lower than the number of people who are actually living there. It's not certain that that would happen. But it's possible that at the outcome of this, if you have lots of people in the Latino community in California or Texas who decide not to participate in the census, They'll have less total people at the end of the process, and as a result, they'll get less house seats. And uh, that could have, you know, sort of boomerang effects. A state like Montana that has a very low Latino or immigrant population could get a second house seat as a result. So to sum up this first potential scenario, in theory, immigrants don't fill out the census because they're too afraid. 
And then the census inaccurately reports that there are fewer people living in states with big immigrant populations. And thus, a state could potentially lose a seat in the House of Representatives. And another state with a low immigrant population could potentially gain a seat. And that could happen to both blue states and red states. A state like Alabama, for instance, which is a very Republican state, and is on the bubble right now, it could very well lose a congressional seat at the end of the 2020 process. Its population hasn't been growing at the same rate. Um, and you have something like 60,000 undocumented immigrants who live in Alabama. And, and if it comes down to a you know 10,000-person count that decides whether Alabama gets to keep their seat or lose a seat, you could have that effect. It could make a real difference whether a sizable portion of a state's immigrant population is too afraid to be counted. In addition to losing a congressional seat, the state might lose federal funding too. If they lose total numbers in the count, they also could lose money. I mean, there are a lot of funding formulas that are based on the number of people, and so you get less education money or less Medicaid money uh, for your state or your city as a result. So that's one way that you could shift political power. Fewer House seats for states with big immigrant populations. The second way, that's where things get really in the weeds. But it's important because this way could affect redistricting on the state level. The courts have said that redistricting on the federal level for House seats has to be done by total people, um, total population. But the courts have also said that states have some leeway in how they decide how to redistrict within their states. So when it comes to state legislatures and board of education districts and county board elections, you don't necessarily have to map out each district so there are equal numbers of total residents in each district. You could have another standard for equal representation, mapping out the districts so that each one has the same number of eligible voters. This is not really something that states do, yet. But federal courts have suggested that they might be open to this. Like, we don't think that there's anything in the Constitution that specifically bans this. And Michael says that, increasingly, conservative activists have talked about passing new laws in some states that would take advantage of that leeway from the courts. So, in some states, Lawmakers could band together and change the rules for what constitutes fair redistricting. And you could make it a requirement that every district has to have the same number of people who are allowed to vote. And here is why that matters. If you switch from counting total voters in a district to eligible voters in a district, you can basically pretend that children and immigrants don't exist. You would basically be cutting out of Texas, for example, everyone who's under the age of 18, which happens to be an overwhelmingly minority group um, because uh, Latinos in that state are having more children. And you would also cut out anyone who is undocumented. And in doing that, you give a lot more power to communities that have fewer children and fewer immigrants. Demographically, those places tend to be whiter, wealthier, and more rural. And in states with large immigrant populations, this could make a big difference. A change like this could help determine whether these state-level legislative bodies will be controlled by Republicans or Democrats, and by what kind of margin. And so the net population for the purposes of state redistricting would go down dramatically, and, and that decrease would be disproportionate. It would go down more in cities than in rural communities, 
And the effect is you would have then more representation for rural communities than you would for cities uh, under the current uh, formula. And uh, given what we know about politics in places like Texas, that means you'd have more Republican representation. And so it's possible, there have been sort of back of the envelope calculations here, that if a state like Texas got this data and then adopted this system, you could actually gain you know, a, a state Senate seat and a couple state House seats. Just by excluding non-voters from their population counts. Both parties want to draw district lines in a way that helps them preserve power. Democrats have been accused of rampant gerrymandering in the past. More recently, Republicans have pushed the limits on tipping the scales in their own favor. And the Supreme Court is currently considering several cases where Republicans and Democrats have been accused of drawing district lines disproportionately in their own favor. But this strategy of using eligible voters, it's controversial because it can result in political representation that doesn't accurately mirror the population of the state. States like Florida, Arizona, Georgia um, have all talked about this, and it's been sort of a hot topic among Republican redistrictors for a while. Um, you know, they are facing this demographic shift, and their long-term outlook, if, if voting patterns don't change, uh, is grim 10, 20, 30 years out. And this allows them to sort of hold on to some of that power to diminish the the emerging influence of, of the Latino population if it were to go into effect. But there's one thing stopping states from trying to switch to eligible voters. They don't have enough precise data from the census on who is eligible to vote and who isn't. Because even with the rough estimates that they get from the small sample of people who fill out the long-form census, no one knows exactly how many non-citizens are living in each state. And if you could get a citizenship question on the census. Gaining more specific data that allows you to know exactly how many undocumented immigrants are living on a single block. So, of course, some people want a citizenship question added to the census. Because that would give them the kind of laser-sharp numbers you'd need to make it possible to map out districts by eligible voters. It would be the first technical step in a cascade of possibilities. You could strengthen your power in the state legislature. And incidentally, you'd have all of this new control over the federal redistricting process, which means that you'd have the best shot at helping your party win more seats in the U.S. Congress. You're changing the balance of power in that state, and you're going to give rural areas more power, net power, than urban areas. And that has all kinds of effects. It'll have effects in voting on, you know, education funding. It'll have effects in voting on... Um, you know, social policies, and it will have effects when it comes to that state redistricting uh, its house seats, its federal house seats, uh, which happens every 10 years. So you can see why Democrats wouldn't want this to happen. They stand to lose a lot of political power in federal and state legislatures. And that's one of the many potential consequences that are looming in the background as these states are waging this legal battle against the Trump administration. Like, there are the effects on immigrant participation in the census, and there are worries about how an undercount could affect stuff like congressional districts and federal funding. And then there's this prospect that Republicans in particular could use this data as a stepping stone to diminish the voting power of communities that are urban or have lots of immigrants. 
And that's how we got to this point, where at least 18 states and a handful of cities have filed lawsuits in federal court against the Department of Commerce. And Michael says that there are two types of things that federal judges will be looking at as they're considering these cases with these really big political implications. First off, they're going to ask, if we put this question on the census form, can there still be an accurate count of all the people in the country? Because there are significant concerns that adding that question will totally warp the census results. And not just because immigrants aren't going to be filling it out, but also because other people, U.S. citizens, will seek to make the results unusable. Um, This has become a political hot potato, and you could very well have people lying now on the census in solidarity with other people because they're so upset the citizenship question is there. Um, And so it's possible you'll get an inaccurate count from that, or people will just refuse on principle to fill out some of the questions on the form. Uh, in a sort of protest. And that's something the Census Bureau is, is trying to prepare for uh, right now. So a court could decide that including this question on the census would spark so many protests that it would make the count inaccurate, that it would prevent the government from fulfilling its constitutional duty of counting all the people in America. And then there's this second issue that a lot of judges are going to be asking questions about. What is motivating the Department of Justice to do this in the first place? Well, because I think a lot of people see this as a politically motivated question. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that including it at this late date is politically motivated. And so these cities and states are going to be holding up evidence that this whole thing is not, in fact, about enforcing the Voting Rights Act, that it's about power. Michael mentioned this email that came from President Trump's re-election campaign that got a lot of attention. So a couple weeks before this decision was finally made to add the citizenship question, the re-election campaign sent an email to people on their fundraising listserv that said, the president wants the 2020 United States Census to ask people whether or not they are citizens. The president wants to know if you're on his side. And then there was a poll that followed. And polling in, uh, in these fundraising emails is basically a way of of raising money. And, and there was an ask included in that. Um, but it was casting it, and there was no mention of the Voting Rights Act in that email. It was casting it as part of uh, President Trump's political effort, which is to be tough on immigration generally, to be hawkish on immigration. And he was appealing there through his campaign to that base who were upset about the number of immigrants in this country and undocumented immigrants in particular. So that complicates the narrative of what DOJ say, says is, is precipitating this. It does. And, and it, it almost certainly will come up in the court cases to come. And it'll probably go to the Supreme Court before 2020. So I'm sure that will be the, the, the motivation behind this shift will be one of the, the points uh, debated before a judge to try and, and block this proposal. So at least in court, President Trump might end up being his own biggest liability. With his tweets and campaign messages and anti-immigrant rhetoric, There is a case to be made here that the president's feelings towards immigrants have everything to do with this directive to the Census Bureau to add a citizenship question. Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general of New York, he straight up said that Trump's Twitter account is, quote, the gift that keeps on giving as far as lawyers are concerned. So for now, this question is going to play out in the courts, and it could even go all the way up to the Supreme Court. 
but regardless of how they rule, there's this one problem that remains. Like it or not, this has already become a political issue for a federal agency that really, really wants to be apolitical. And the Census Bureau's big fear is coming true. All this controversy surrounding this one simple question on a form could very well be a big issue two years from now. Not just in the 2020 census, in the 2020 election. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts, or find us anywhere else that you listen. Just a heads up, a previous version of this story referred to INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which actually isn't an agency anymore. Now it's the Department of Homeland Security. Can He Do That? It's produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Voglio, and original music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to Lori Aritani and Michael Shearer for help with this episode. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.